Amen. The title of my message this morning is Selected for Service. Now think about that word selected. What is it to be selected? What is selection, the act of selecting? Well, to select is to choose. In particular, we talk about uh, selecting uh, as, as sort of a careful choosing of something. It's not uh, any, meeny, miny, mo. It's, uh, you know, there, there's intentionality in uh, selecting something. You, you mull over it or whatever, and then you ultimately select something. And as we get into the scripture this morning, in fact, in just a moment, uh, you'll see why I chose this title, this word selection in this title. So that said, would you open up your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians? By way of context, this book, the book of Ephesians, it's not just a book, but more technically, it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the ancient city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city in, the, in ancient Greece on, on the coast of Ionia. As you can see up here, it was built in the 10th century BC, sometime before, you know, it was a pop in place before the time of Christ, around the time of Christ and the time of the Apostle Paul. It was under the control of the Roman Empire, and the city was booming at that time. Uh, Strabo, the ancient Greek historian who lived during Christ's time, wrote that Ephesus had the greatest emporium in the province of, of Asia Minor. This was a place that had a booming economy. It, the, the harbor had all kinds of trade going on in it and just life. You, know, you might think of Long Beach or something like that. It's just, it's a busy place. Throughout the city, there were stadiums. Th throughout the city, there were big gymnasiums. There were athletic fields. There were temples to pagan gods. In particular, the temple of Artemis, which was dedicated to the pagan goddess of fertility and hunting, this Artemis. She, she was worshipped all, all throughout Greece, Artemis was, along with other goddesses and, and, and gods. But Artemis, this was, uh, this was the place. Man, go to Ephesus. You gotta, man, when you're at Ephesus, what are you doing here? Oh, you got to go see the temple of Artemis. It was designated as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It would be like going to Egypt and not seeing the pyramids. You know, you've you got to see this place and this fertility goddess and, and weird pagan uh, crazy stuff that goes on there. Well, so Ephesus is this dark city. Ephesus is this important and wealthy and affluent city. It's, it's like Los Angeles. It's like Long Beach. It's a, a major place that sets trends around the world at the time. And Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, hence it's called Ephesians, while he was in prison in Rome. So this book is a letter. This letter is a prison letter. Uh, we might think of Martin Luther King Jr. and his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. In fact, Paul, like King, was no stranger to going to jail for his faith. Paul penned several letters that we have inside of the Bible from a jail cell. Not only Ephesians, but Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Okay, with that said, we have some context. Let's get into the text. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul greets the church. He greets the saints. He, he, he begins the letter with a proper greeting, and that proper greeting flows into an extended prologue of, of praise. Let's keep reading, and then you'll see why I titled the sermon what I did for this Lord's Day. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we will be holy and blameless before Him in love. He 
predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ in himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now the language of the text here speaks of God selecting a people for salvation. God selects, we're told, before the very foundation of the world. He saves those who he has selected before the foundation of the world in space and time through the power of the preaching of the gospel. The word gospel, euangelion in the Greek, it is a word that means good news. It is a, world, it is a word that was used in that world for heralding information. The, the Roman government would send out heralds who would go to the busy streets and they would say, hey, 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 I have euangelion. I have euangelion, and people would gather because that's how information was disseminated through the Roman Empire. So when you hear of euangelion, you pick up, okay, okay, let's listen, let's see what's... There is good news that has come. And this good news isn't from Rome, it's, it's from heaven. This good news is from holy heaven to fallen earth to let fallen earth know that, that, that the heavens have a plan of rescuing the earth. It, it's the ultimate news that the world has ever heard, will ever hear, that, that, that the holy God of heaven has a remedy for the sins of the earth. And that message, that gospel, that news, as it is heralded, as it goes out, it, it does something. It saves people. It saves people. The sound waves that are popping around the room and going into your little eardrums that, that you're using to, to hear if all your stuff is working right, all the plumbing in your ears is working right, those little sound waves... You hear sounds, you hear words, there's meaning in it. But when, 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 when the sound waves are popping around with this message of the gospel, you don't just have sound waves going in your ears. You have something going on deep within your heart that actually changes you and saves you. To, to be saved is to be rescued from something or someone. And, and in this case, the something is... Is, is death and condemnation to be rescued from that. And, and the someone in this case is, is God. I think we forget that. We talk a lot about salvation in church, but we forget about who we're being saved from. We're being saved from the holy God who is just and righteous, who cannot be bribed and who cannot turn a, a, a blind eye to sin. He, he, he must punish sin because he is just and We've sinned against him, and so that, 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 that's bad news. I can't bribe him. I can't get away with it. I can't point to someone else who's worse than me. It, it doesn't work that way, you see. And so that, that, that's bad news, but then to the bad news comes the euangelion, the good news of the God who saves. And as that message is explained and proclaimed, God, before the foundations of the world, has selected a people for himself, and then in space and time, as that message is proclaimed and it's heard, God takes it and regenerates hearts. Look, look and listen at the word of God. You have Ephesians 1 in front of you. Look at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Spirit is at work within the hearts of fallen men and women so that as the message is proclaimed he saves in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 the Apostle Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation it overpowers 
depraved, dark, fallen hearts. It overpowers them and changes them and gives them new life. This is why the scriptures use the language of being born again. It's to have new life. And this comes through the preaching of this message. But, but that preaching of the message that changes the heart by the work of the Spirit through the proclamation of the Son, that was ordained before the foundations of the world to occur. You were selected, you were saved, you were sealed. And God did this among His many reasons that are given inside of Scripture. God did this for the purpose of service, hence the title of today's message, Selected for Service. You have Ephesians 1 in front of you. Let me show you this in the text. I've showed you the part about selection. Let me show you the part about service. Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So you see, we were saved for the foundations of the world. He selected. And then through the proclamation of the gospel in space and time, He saves this, this selection and salvation is for the purpose of service, which was prepared beforehand. He's prepared things for you to walk into, like booby traps. They're already set up, and by his sovereign plan, you're going to walk through them. Unlike booby traps that you know, usually have negative effects, these will be for the good. You were saved for the good, for good works. You've been given good news, and that good news will birth good works. This brings us to the first point on our outline that I want to emphasize that we see in the text of Ephesians chapter 1. We are chosen by a sovereign. Ephesians is so clear. You, you read Ephesians, sometimes people say, well, you know, are you a Calvinist or whatever? You believe in this predestination stuff? You know, hey, look, I believe in the Bible, and the Bible says he predestined us, verse 5. I believe in the Bible, and the Bible says he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Salvation is a gift of God that no man may boast. Faith is a gift of God that no man may boast. The fact that I believe in him wasn't because I was smart enough, or to flip it negatively, because sometimes they'll say, you know, Christians are, are the dumb people, or I was simple enough or whatever to believe this. It had nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. It was a gift. He did it. That's what the text says. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Predestined by him. And it's not a, a predestining, as some would suggest, because he looked into the future and saw the good things that I would do, and so he chose me because he knew I would choose him. The text doesn't say that. And further, if it did say that, then that would make salvation based on works, because you would have God looking at what men do and responding to it, and that's not how it works. If God were looking at what men would do in every possible world before the creation of this world, you'd see a trans world depravity. We saw that in the beginning of our reading of Scripture this day in the book of Romans. We're depraved. We're in the darkness. We're given over to that darkness. We don't deserve salvation. You know, often people will be scandalized when you bring up the topic of, of damnation. You bring up the topic of hell. People get really, you know, they get really, you know, triggered by that. Oh, that's not fair. That's not fair. And you say, no, no, no. Hell is actually not the thing in our faith that is unfair, the thing in our faith that is unfair is heaven. We should be scandalized by the thought of any of us going to heaven because we do not deserve that. But the good news says there is one who has come, who has deserved, who has earned that, who by his righteous life, his innocent life, by his work, he will exchange our record for his own and impute that to our account. That's the good news, church. 
that, that's what hopefully you came this morning excited to hear about, and I'm just going to keep on talking about it until I, I go blue in the face and die. This is the good news. And the good news entails a story of a sovereign who chose you. Now, I understand that saying that, people are scandalized by the thought of God choosing to save. And, and, you know, and, and again, it, it brings up all these fallen, fallen intuitions about what's fair and whatever. You know, oh, what do you mean God, God chooses? People are scandalized by this language. There are people in the church even scandalized by this language. The, 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 not just the language, but the thought of its reality that God chose to save someone. No, 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 surely men do that. Like, like we chose him, right? And then he forgave us. No, 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 he chose you. That's what the Bible says. And like many things in the Bible, it's quite countercultural. In our culture in particular, we're all about freedom and choices. Oh, we're all about options too. Uh, you know, you go to the store to buy some cereal, right? It's crazy. We have a whole aisle with lots of options. I'm going to get some bread. you got a whole aisle with lots of options. I'm going to get some frozen pizza. you got all kinds of options when you go to the store. You travel around the world in developing nations, and there's just some bread, and there's maybe, maybe a couple soda options, if that, right? You know, uh, hey, I want some fruit, and there's just like one kind of fruit, you know, you go, whoa, you know. But in the West, we have our Costco's, we have our options, we like our options, we like our choices, we, we like that. And as a result, the, the, the message of the gospel that there's only one Savior, that, oh, that's so scandalous to us. How can you say there's only one we live in a culture of choices. We love choice. We worship choice. Think of what is raging right now uh, in the news with the so-called pro-choice movement. I went on a diatribe last week about it. I'll do a little bit more uh, this day because I can't help myself. But pro-choice, the people who coined the phrase pro-choice were not stupid. Do you know which phrase was coined first? Pro-life was coined first. So the people who responded to the label pro-life said, we are going to wordsmith something for our group that will sound better than your group, because that's what happens when you come up with labels. You always got to make yours sound better than the other side. Pro-choice. Because in our culture, choice is more important than life. It's more important than life. We worship choice. We worship our freedom. We worship those things. And as a result, in particular around the last couple of years with government saying things and what have you, we, we get really triggered when someone get, infringes on my decision making. This week, the secular forces in the U.S. Senate tried to pass a bill to make abortion federal law. Of course, in response to the fears of, 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 of pro-life and the nation's top court that is posed to curtail pro-choice. After this, uh, these shenanigans, the vice president went to the press and lamented, and I quote, sadly, the Senate failed to stand in defense of a woman's right to make decisions over her own body. There it is, choice. Isn't it so sad that you don't have a choice to kill life? And again, we dealt with this last week. It, this isn't about decision over your own body because you don't have two hearts and four lungs and 
uh, and 20 toes and 20 fingers. That's a, there's a separate heartbeat that is being snuffed out in the act of abortion. It's, it's, it's not an issue of doing what you want with your body. I'll, I'll be the first to defend your right to do what you want to do with your body. You want to get a tattoo, you want to cut your nails, cut your hair, you want to do you know, the trans stuff and start chopping off things and attaching things. Hey, knock yourselves out. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea, but you know, hey, I'm all for your freedom in that regard. We're not talking about bodily autonomy. But in this case, what I'm talking about is the worship of the God of choice. We will kill, we will kill to have our choices. We will lie to have our choices. And in this case, we will ignore clear science and common sense that abortion takes a life that is not a woman's body, and we will foolishly frame it around this issue of choice because we worship choice, human choice. Now back to Ephesians chapter 1. This is about God's choice. This is why there are many who are scandalized when they hear the idea, God choosing? And Paul is not a one-off in starting an epistle this way. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the resident aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, as he keeps going. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness in his marvelous light. Selection service. You've been chosen for service. Specific service of proclamation. This is about God's choice. Not any old God, mind you, but the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. The God of the good news. The, the, the Father who sent the Son who takes the penalty for us. The Son who is eternal God, who, who takes on mortal flesh and becomes a full man and dies in the place of humanity. He pays, he pays a, a, a death that he did not deserve because we had a death coming for us that would take us and sweep us away into the very pits of hell, and that's what we would have coming. But by His grace, He sent another to stand in the place for us. This is the God who we proclaim. This is the God of the good news. It's, 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 it's about God's choice, you see. And it is also about our condition, you see. Look at Ephesians. It's in front of you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to your condition. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.2, 2, we're called sons of disobedience. In Ephesians 2.3, we're, we're this way by nature, children of wrath. It's, it's in our nature. It's what we are. Verse 4, but God. Oh, I love when that preposition. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he lavished on us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So you, you see, it's about God's choice, and it's about our condition our condition being fallen, his choice to give the fallen faith, and through faith to set us free from, from what we otherwise would not have. It, it's about God's choice. It's about our condition. For by grace, look at verse 8, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, this faith that is given to you, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is not abstract theology for Paul. Look at chapter 1, verse 18, and notice how Paul prays that these theological realities would enlighten his readers and give them hope. I don't know about you, but this is everything to me. This is what gives me hope as, as a pastor, that God is in control. That it's not, it's not my job to change hearts. It's, it's my job to proclaim the good news that has come 
And he does a work through that. He does a work through that. He's in charge of that. And he's a gracious God. And so that's what gives me hope. That's what gives me hope as a father. I, I'm, I'm helpless over the hearts of my children. I, I can't even get up to clean their rooms. They're over here. But, you know, let alone save their souls, right? I, I, I mean, this is what gives me hope, though, is that God's merciful and, and God's gracious and God's kind and his word is powerful. But again, I'm aware that the idea that God chose is one that will be scandalous. And so, so let, let me lay into it a little bit more. We'll move from chosen by the sovereign to checked by Scripture, the next point on your outline. And would you move from Ephesians into the book of Job and find your way to the 38th chapter in the book of Job. Most scholars believe that the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. That said, here's a little history to the book or narrative of the book. There's a historical man who is quite prosperous in the Middle East. He owned thousands of sheep, thousands of camel, hundreds of oxen, hundreds of donkeys. This made him very rich. He had a great home. He had a large household. He had seven sons and three daughters. He's described in, in history in Job 1.3 as the greatest of all the people in the east. Well, his position changed one day, and he lost his children, his home, his livestock, his own body. He became deathly ill and penniless. He, he was bummed, and rightly so, and... That said, as was the custom in the land, he sat in the midst of ashes. He scraped his body with a, with a piece of pottery as his, his skin was in, infected and his mind was depressed. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? His own wife asked him in Job 2.9. Curse God and die, she told him. Very supportive wife, right? Uh, you, don't, you don't hear Job uh, 2.9 on Mother's Day sermons. Uh, but Job refused to curse God. Job 2.10, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God? He replied, And shall we not accept adversity? Find your way to the 38th chapter. Job would cry out, uh, Though you slay me, I will trust you, Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As you move through the story, uh, God appears and, and he speaks, and that's what I want you to see. And he checks not only Job and the community around them, but he checks all of us. Chapter 38, verse 1. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. The whirlwind. He's a powerful God. Who is that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now you gird up your loins like a man, and I'll ask you, you would struck me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched its line on it? On, on what were its bases sunk? On, on, and who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy and, and closed the sea with the doors and bursting forth and it went out forth from the womb and I make a cloud like its garment, a thick darkness in its swaddling hand and I place the boundaries on it and I set bolts and doors and, and I said thus far you shall come no farther and here shall your, your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning, Job, and caused the dawn to know its place, Job, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked will be taken out of it? It, it, it changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a, like a, like a garment from the, from the wicked. Their, 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 their light is withheld and, and the uplifted arm is broken. 
Have you entered into the springs of the sea, Job, or, or walked in the recesses of the deep, Job? Have, have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? Have you seen the gates of, of the deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know this. And it just it keeps going on, keeps going on. And God makes the point clear. I'm God, and you're not. There's a God who is, and there's a God that humans want, and the two aren't the same. Because the God that humans want, we make in our fallen image. And so we have all sorts of figment of our own imagination gods that we make. But the God who is and the God men want are, are not the same. As you continue the story, God in his grace prospers Job. Job, Job as a sinner, has, has no right to shake his fist at God like anything's unfair. He, he, he deserved far worse than he received. Incidentally, we are always far better than we deserve. When someone asks you, how are you doing today? Just say, I'll tell you what, I'm doing far better than I deserve. It'll start a conversation or an awkward, all right, then see you later. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to just say, good. That's, uh, that's the proper thing. Good, good, all right, peace out. But just say, I'm doing far better than I deserve. Look how God puts him in his place. He shows him who he is, and he shows us who we are. He's, he's checked by the sovereign, and we are checked by the scripture. Along with Job, look, look up here at Romans chapter 9. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand. There's that language again. Even us who are called not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. You didn't have it coming. You were not his people. And he chose, not you, to make you his people. He is the potter. We are the clay. The clay is not in a position uh, uh, you know, to complain that it was formed into something it didn't like. Plato can't go, I don't want to be a ball or whatever. I want to be a man. No, I'm going to make you into a ball. He talks about vessels of honor. That is clay that was formed for something like a luxury piece of art to be displayed in a home. Then there are vessels of common use. That would be clay that was formed for collecting things like trash or, or you know, uh, porta potty clay bowls for for people to, you know, uh, put fluids in and what have you. And, and Paul sees God as a sovereign who says, hey, I, I do, I'm doing what I want to do because I'm, I'm God and you're not, and who are you to say? Now, people were, were struggling, as Paul writes this in Romans. In particular, they're, they're struggling in the Jewish context of, of the many who had rejected the Jewish Messiah. And there were Gentiles that had chose him and and lots of Jewish folks who hadn't, and Paul's writing as a Jewish man in this Jewish context, and, and, and you can see in Romans 9 through 11, this is a section where he's talking about how God's sovereign all of this, and, and God's going to save his people Israel, and, and you know what's happening now as we're seeing Gentiles being brought into the covenant, that created some, some questions about that, and, and he just checks everyone. Look, God is the one who saves, not man, so humble yourself before the potter. So often... Men think that we have something to show God, that, that somehow we, we can impress him or inform him. I hear people say things like, uh, you know, mind you, a God they don't even believe in, but they'll say things like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. 
Uh, well, okay, the first part, when you get to heaven. Let's talk about that. And then the second part, you're going to give him a piece of your mind? Oh, yeah, no, it, you won't. He is, in the words of Scripture, Hebrews 12, 29, he's a consuming fire. He speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. He's not to be trifled with. He's not to be trifled with. But here's the thing. This consuming fire is not in heavens, uh, in the heavens, puffing out his chest, flexing his muscle in his ice cube voice, check yourself before you wreck yourself. No, this consuming fire, this consuming fire, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is a merciful and gracious and loving creator. With Job in, in front of us, we, we read in the book of Psalms, Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm, Psalm 144, oh, oh Lord, what is man that you take care of him? Man is like a breath. His days are a fleeting shadows. We're, we're fleeting shadows. We're, we're like breath. Our, our bodies are frail. And next to the majesty of God, we're nothing. And yet we're special to him. The Bible says that he, he made us in his own image. So how do we reconcile him as a consuming fire and, and Job's checking you know, with this love? Well, we go back to the gospel. We go back to the bad news. Humanity's rebelled against the Creator. So the all-powerful one who creates the universe with the ease of his words, he speaks and it happens. That powerful agent has become humanity's enemy. The giver of life was rebelled against, and so life is taken back, and the punishment fits the crime. He gave us life, we rebelled, and he takes life back. And yet, in some cases, he chooses not to take it back. Even further, he chooses to give life. This selection, this decision, is his prerogative and not ours. Rebels cannot make the terms of the divine agreement. God chooses and makes from among the rebels, uh, from among the enemies, he makes some of them into his own sons. In Ephesians 1, what we read, it said that this is a part of his plan before the very foundations of the world. This consuming fire that we stand against as rebels becomes not, not, not the fire of judgment that we deserve but the warm fire of a furnace, a fireplace that warms the children of a family. There is a tension then as we approach God. He's, he's the warm fire and the fireplace for the family, but he's also the consuming fire that will envelop his enemies. The great Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis depicted the tension in his fictional story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, if you've read the book or, or maybe seen the movies, uh, in it he depicted God as a lion, Aslan, in the land of Narnia, there's a classical trialogue between several characters. Aslan, I'll put it in front of you, is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. A few pages later, we have this great line where it says, he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. You see the description of Aslan as a lion that is unsafe and also good at the same time provides a theological tension for us with the text of Ephesians and the text of Job in front of us, as well with our next text, the text of 1 Corinthians. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians, we'll move into our next point on the outline. It is a point about our service in 1 Corinthians. There's a point about our mission in 1 Corinthians. He has saved us for service. He has saved us for mission. 
this, this untamed, consuming fire, this good and loving Father who saves us, has set us for mission. Now, hopefully you have 1 Corinthians in front of you. For context, the letter was written in the early 50s to the first century church in the city of Corinth that Paul started. Like Ephesus, Corinth was a poppin' place. It was the town to be in. Unlike Ephesus, uh, this is not a prison letter of 1 Corinthians. It was penned in the mission field around the end of the apostles' second missionary journey. The letter comes to the church in Corinth because Paul had heard word of some dysfunctions and divides and some distorted doctrines that were going on. And so the letter is written to call the church to repentance and to point them to God and to mission in the gospel. As you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, notice that it begins with God. God's calling, God's character, and then it moves, as we'll see in a moment, to mission. From sovereignty to service. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called an apostle, Jesus Christ, by the will of God. It's by his will. He's the sovereign. Verse 2, you have the language about being sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. Look at verse 3 and verse 4 of 1 Corinthians. Paul speaks about the grace of God. And then look at verses 5 through 8. We see God's perseverance of the saints. And in verse 9, it is declared, look at verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And watch this. He moves from sovereignty to service in this verse. And not just that, but God Almighty has entrusted us with a task of utter importance. I've, I've, given, I've selected you for service, and this service is of utter importance. I've entrusted you with a message for mankind, this good news. And this is our service. Let, let me give you a cross-reference here. I'll put it in front of you so you can keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians. This is Romans chapter 1. For God, whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul tells the righteous about service. We serve in the proclamation of this gospel. That is our service. That the unique thing that God has given to all of us to, to preach this message, preach this good news. That's of utter importance. Don't ever get off of that. We always need to hear that. The gospel is not the ABCs and the one, two, threes. The gospel is the whole, it's the whole enchilada. It's everything to us. And with 1 Corinthians in front of you, note in 1 Corinthians 1.17 where he says that Christ sent him to preach the gospel and specifies that it's the message of the cross. This, this brutal execution of an innocent man is what, is what we proclaim because it's through that brutal execution and suffering of the innocent one that we have the suffering we deserve and the death we deserve exchange for his innocent life. That's, that's our message. And as we herald that message, we also must herald who he is, the one on the cross. He's the God-man, the eternal son in the flesh. Therefore, he is on the cross. The one hanging on the cross, bleeding out, is the consuming fire in the flesh. He's the lion in the flesh, dying in our place. And that is the message that we carry. That is the message that gives life. That is the power, that, that, that message. I pray even now as it's being told to you that God is grabbing hearts who are hearing this in this room on, online and, and, and saving and, and redeeming and then placing you into service. We carry this, this message and God uses this message. Now think about, think about this. If this is true, and it is, 
the destiny of countless millions of people's souls and the outcome of world history rests in the mouth of mortal humans. The fate of the souls of the city of Los Angeles rests in the the mouths of Delray Church and churches all around the city that are faithful in proclaiming this. More broadly, cities around the entire world, the, the nations of the world, they hang on the lips of mortals sharing this news. Why would God entrust it to us? How odd of God. I, I have to thank God that I'm not God all the time because I would not have done it this way. I, I, would, have, I would have chosen angels to have this responsibility. Just cool, fiery angels. And every time there's like a conversation, you're like, hey, Jesus, Jesus isn't real. You're so narrow-minded. There's lots of gods. And just have fiery angels show up and be like, what? No, he is. You know, and like shake a fire sword around and smack fools down and be saved. And then, zoom, go up into the heavens. Like, he's entrusted this message to, to mortals. Why would you pick us? Why? Uh, as a kid, I, I had to transfer schools in the fourth grade. It was a rough transition. My parents were going through divorce. It was a really rough time, but changing schools when you're a kid is a hard thing. I went from a, a, a school that was a handball, a, a handball dodgeball school at, at, at recess. We're all about that dodgeball life, and everyone had their teams figured out. And, you know, like I was on the team that was whipping everybody, and, you know, every day other teams, kids were trying to form. We just keep on. We're like the dodgeball kings handball court, you know, had it dialed in. Like, third grade, I was on top of everything. Then fourth grade, everything gets messed up. I switch schools, and I go to a school. They, there's no handball courts. Uh, well, there are handball courts, but that's like where you break dance and battle rap. And then, uh, you know, the rest of the school is just basketball, and it's like, oh, I got to figure this game out, you know, because recess hits, and we're going to shoot for teams, and uh, whoever makes it becomes captains and whatever, and you don't want to be the last guy. Like, Okay, I get him. Okay, I get him. Yeah, I get him. I guess I'll take Matt, <laughs> you know, at the end. And I, I think about God's election of us, his selection of us, and I, and I go, you, you picked the, the, the transfer kid who doesn't know how to play. I, I, I think of the Lord, though, and I think of a competition on earth between good and evil and souls being in the balance, and for the starting line, he picks humans. <laughs> You have powerful angels, mighty angels. You have yourself. You could just, just, out of the thunder, just ripple the message out and just save everyone. But you picked us. You chose us. The Apostle Paul muses on this in 1 Corinthians, which is why I'm musing on this to set it up for us. We've skimmed the opening nine verses, which form an opening salutation or prologue to the ancient letter of the church in Corinth. Now, now move from verses uh, 10 through 17. He starts dealing with some of the divisions and problems they were having. The problem that was dividing and derailing their, their, their service. And he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? Seems people were divided over some, some junior high type stuff, some cool kid tables, some cliques and gossip, pettiness, teenage immaturity. At the heart of the feud were people who were saying that they were followers of Paul and others were followers of Apollos. And look at verse 13. He says, has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Zinger, ouch, serious wake-up call, okay? Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Well, you know, Crispus and Gaius are like, what are you talking about? You baptized me. Okay, Crispus and Gaius, verse 15, so that no one of you would say that you were baptized in my name, nor did I baptize also the household of Stephanus. Now I baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptize any other. 
In other words, why are you guys making a big deal out, out of baptism and this and that? Like, not, that, that's not what matters. Verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in the cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would be made void. Whoa, you see what he's saying? There are people who are trying to be clever with this. There are people that are trying to change the, the message into something that it's not, to try and, like, I guess, hoodwink people to come in. Uh, Paul says, we don't preach to entertain. I, I'm not clever. I'm, I'm not funny, Paul says. I, I preached a message to you that, that was neither of those things. And why? Because that you might confuse my eloquence with the reality of, of God's election. And so to drive this home, this sovereignly unpacked message that, that the church has been given, look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is, is foolish to people who are perishing. You, you tell people who are perishing about Jesus, and they're, yeah, no, that, no, virgin birth, only way, they're gonna, dying on it, why would, you know, and they're, they're, they're going to attack your faith and attack the Bible. It, it sounds dumb to them. In fact, the Greek word that is used here for foolishness is moria. This is where we get our word moron. Your, your gospel's moronic. It's absurd. In, in rendering 1 Corinthians 1.18, it is important to recognize that the foolishness must be defined in terms of the relationship that it has to those who are perishing. Follow me. It, it's, it's important. It's important to recognize that the foolishness must be defined in the terms of the relationship to those who are perishing. Therefore, it may be important to translate verse 18 as those who are perishing think the message concerning the cross is moronic or nonsense. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ's sake. Now with that, we'll move to the next point. We've seen that we are chosen by the sovereign, checked by scripture. We've considered our service as we've been called to go and herald. Let's contemplate our salvation and what these texts are teaching us. Let me say this, for some, the gospel sounds foolish because the Christian sharing it is ill-equipped. There are many Christians who do not know how to offer a biblically rational argument for their faith. They unnecessarily make the message foolish with their own foolishness and ignorance. Instead of being slow to speak, they jump in, and content-wise, what they say is often bad. There are many who don't understand the Bible enough or theology contained in it enough to really share it with accuracy. And there are some whose, whose lives make the gospel foolish because of the hypocrisy or the lack of love that they have in their life. That lack of, of, of love in their life, they'll, they'll even have it just in terms of the church. They're the keyboard warriors on social media or going hard on people and you're just going... Man, uh, and, and when it comes time to actually share the gospel, it's all muddled and, 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 and bogged down by all this extra stuff and unnecessary stuff. That's not what Paul's getting at. Surely Paul was, was dealing with hypocrisy in Corinth and such, but in this opening chapter, it's not what Paul's dealing with. Paul says the gospel, even when presented perfectly, with good biblical reasoning and, and a loving, winsome Christian demeanor, it nevertheless is foolish to the wisdom of the world. To the lost, God's ways do not make sense, both rationally or emotionally. Through uh, good apologetics, we may win over the rationality of, of faith, but the heart will never be won over. Deep in the emotions and the joy of man, it, it's still going to seem foolish. The heart will feed the mind, and the message will be resisted, and, uh, and so-called intellectualism and all the rest. People will come up with reasons to go against this, but it ultimately isn't an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. 
It's, 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 it, and it's not an abstract thing. It's a, it's a thing for us to look at and really take a personal check in, in our hearts and go, wow, God, you did something in me. Contemplate your salvation. It, 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 if you believe this, it, you, you wouldn't have on your own. It, it would be foolishness to you. As we contemplate our salvation, we must contemplate that in terms of our congregation. Uh, in, in recent years, we've lost numbers of people. We, we're, we're seeking to, to again, get, get our wheels on the ground and, and grow and see the church grow. And, and, and as we pray and cry out to God for the church to grow, what will we rely on? The gospel. The gospel. And, I, you know, you, you get people that say, maybe if you tone the sermons down, make them a little shorter, maybe if someone uses the drums and we get, we get a little, you know, we get a, then, then the church will go, you know, maybe if we, like, paint the building or maybe if we do this or maybe we make the website a little bit better or maybe if we... No, that's not how you grow the church. You grow the church by preaching the gospel. It is, it is not by might nor by power, as Zechariah said, but by the Spirit. And the Spirit moves through the preaching of the gospel. Paul, Paul started this letter reminding them how they are saved. It was God's doing. Some well-meaning Christians often, they'll, they'll forget this, and they'll, they'll, they'll hire even church marketing, and, and, and let's, let's market to people. We'll, we'll market, and, and then we'll, you'll get people to come. Beloved, we must always remember that our message is a message that the world is going to think is dumb. And there's a temptation for believers, well-intended, to try to kind of cut, put, put some makeup on that, to try, to try to cover it up. But that's like selling bottled water to those who are drowning. It's selling ice to Eskimos. It's, it's foolish. The message of the cross is foolish. We need to be reminded of this lest we rely on something other than the message and like rebellious, awkward teenagers be embarrassed to be seen with our dad, right? I was that kid as a teenager. My dad would uh, drive us to school, and my dad's car wasn't as cool as the other dad's car. So, hey, why don't you drop me off uh, here on the corner, Pop? Yeah, I'll walk the rest of the way, you know? So I don't have to hear it about my dad's beater Nova from the other kids, uh, the rich kids or whatever. You know, and then it's time to pick up. Hey, I'll meet you on the corner, Dad. You know, Dad gets out of the car, his fanny pack and stuff on. It was like, Dad, just stay in the car, man. <laughs> You're, you're, you're a rebellious teenager. You're embarrassed by him. And many churches are this way. Just like, oh, you know, Jesus, oh, only way, bloody cross, dying, sinners, wrath, consuming fire, all that. You know, uh, five ways to have better relationships. Yeah, we'll do a sermon series on that. You go, well, how dare you? How dare you? That's not our message. Now, I'm all interested in people having better relationships, and you could get life coaches that can tell you that sort of stuff and whatever. Knock yourselves out. Get counselors. That's great. Love counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists. That, 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 that's wonderful. But we have a message that has been uniquely given to us that we must herald. This good news, as it is heralded, must proclaim the bad news. There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, sons of disobedience. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. And people will not like to hear that. But God uses that to save. A lot of people think they're already saved. So when you bring a message of God saving, they're like, oh yeah, that, that sounds great. So that's true for you, all right. You know, no, 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 no. 
you won't know the good news is good unless you know the bad news. If the, if the doctor said, hey, you're cancer-free, oh, that's cool. But if you knew you had cancer, and, and then you came back and the doctor said, hey, your results came back, you're cancer-free. You go, oh, praise God, right? We, part of this message that we have to herald, the foolish part of it is fallen man doesn't like to think that, that, that they're going to get punished or that they, they don't they don't deserve a, 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 a participation trophy from God. Look at verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed... We, we Jews, verse 22, we ask for signs, and, and those Greeks, right, they ask for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jewish people, stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. Stumbling block to the Jewish people. They, a lot of them misread their scriptures and thought the Messiah was going to come and kick everyone's hiney. And so they're like, a Messiah who dies, no. The Greeks is just foolishness, a, you know, a, a savior in the flesh. That sounded weird to them. But to those, verse 24, who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. This, this message has, has strength to it. This, this message has to be proclaimed in its original form. It can't be watered down. It can't be adapted. I say this because in North America, churches have become consumerist marketing schemes. They're like pyramid schemes, and they're, they're just out there, and they're, just, they're trying to get bodies in the building as opposed to souls in heaven who will be resurrected in the last of days. And, and I listen to a ton of sermons, all, you know, and things people post, and, I go, and people say, this was a great sermon. I go, he didn't tell you anything about who God is or what God has done. Why was that a good sermon to you? Well, because he, you know, he was giving it to these people. No, no, he didn't tell you who God is and what God has done. Tozer warned this. He said, if I see aright, the cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. It is rather a new bright ornament upon the bosom of the self-assured and carnal Christianity. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross amuses. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh, the new cross encourages it. Delray Church, the old cross is what we need. Listeners, today, the old cross beckons you to come, to surrender, to hear of condemnation, to hear not to have confidence in your flesh, to hear of, of, of this slaying that, 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 that comes, and then to hear the good news of the one who was slain for you. To, to be reminded, Delray Church, that we are weak, we are foolish, we are without power, Consider your calling, verse 26, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The Apostle Paul himself, we, we know from extra-biblical texts that he was a weak man as far as appearance goes. We know from his own letters and, and perceptions that he wasn't a great orator. We know that he had uh, health issues that are alluded to in his letters, particularly his eyesight. Uh, the guy was a small, little, weak guy. And so when you picture the scenes of, of the gospel being proclaimed in, in the book of Acts, you want to picture a little guy who's got nothing flashy about him 
and yet thousands of people in their lives are being changed. In the book of Acts, we read uh, the interlocutors in Acts 4.13. It says that they observed that the, the apostles were uneducated and untrained men. They, they weren't impressive. They, there was nothing impressive about them. The churches today want that, though. They want these... They, they want to have that, that bling and that impressing, and they, they, they're given over to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we read that, that our, we are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is in God who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. Look, look back at 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God has chosen the foolish of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak of the world to shame the strong. And the base things of the world and the despised things God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that on no man can, can boast before him. He picked the kid that doesn't know how to hoop to be the captain of his team. Observe who we are, brothers and sisters, the foolish and the weak and the base. Why did God choose us? Why, why did God choose us? Verse 28, so that he may nullify the things that are. You see, beloved, God is destroying the wisdom of the world and the salvation of the church. The Lord said to Jeremiah, I'll put it in front of you, let, no, no, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast of his might, let, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That is why God chooses such totally unqualified people and fills them with his precious spirit and then does a mighty work th through them in order to, to astound and baffle the world. That is why God chooses such unqualified people uh, it, 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 because it uplifts this work of salvation. You otherwise can't explain it. Why would people come to a place to hear some bald-headed guy rant for an hour about you going to hell and deserving that and God's a fireball and why? why? Oh, to astound the world because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. Verse 30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom for God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Corinthians apparently had given over to this kind of consumerism and had given over to, hey, let's get Apollos in here. He's a better speaker. Hey, let's, kinda, you know, let's do this. Hey, we'll, you, we'll tolerate sin and all that stuff because you know, more people will come. You know, and so we won't say anything. So they had sin that they weren't disciplining. They had weirdo doctrine stuff going on, but, you know, who wants to hear doctrine stuff? And so they're tolerating all of that. Let me ask you something. How can we be so foolish as to try to find some reason in ourselves for why, why God would use us? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech. 1 Corinthians 2, 1. I didn't come with superiority of speech, or I didn't come to you with wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in, in fear and much trembling and my message and my preaching, they were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. I love the story in 1 Samuel 17 about the little shepherd boy who slays the giant. And no, it's not a story about how you can conquer your giants. It's a story about God's power. He uses little boys. Jesus said he'll, he'll use the rocks to cry out. Oh, the joy, this final point on our outline, that we can be used by him, that we can be co-laborers with him. That's the language of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 3.2, Paul describes Timothy as God's co-worker in the gospel. 
God chose to save a people, and he called them to labor in the world with the word. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we, we give thanks to God, brethren beloved of the Lord, of the world, the, of, of the Lord because God has chosen you from the beginning for a salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. This means that God is at, at work in us, and he's doing a work in us for purpose of making us a witness, Delray Church, in the city of Los Angeles where he's placed us. I love in Acts uh, 18, uh, Jesus comes to Paul. Look at this text. And Jesus says to Paul, I have many people in that city. I have many people in that city. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. I have many people in that city. Remember, before the foundations of the world, he selected. Remember that in space and time, through the preaching of the word, that selection is activated by the Spirit. I have people that I've chosen in that city for you to go to. And often when you talk about God choosing, people say, well, then why should we be missionaries? God's just going to say what he's going to say. If you believe all that stuff, what's even the point of going? No, no, it's the other way around. I wouldn't want to go if it were on my power. I wouldn't want to go if it, if, if, if it relied on me. I'd, I'd fail every time at it. The, the fact that people get saved through the, the preaching of the gospel that, 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 that is heralded in this church I, I look, I, that's, a, that's a work of God because God has chosen people in this city to save. Contrary to what haters will say, God's election does not remove the call of mission, it fuels it. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is our confidence that our Father is good and that his spirit is all over this city drawing people to the Son. In Acts 16, 14, look at this text, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. We proclaim and God opens hearts. Isn't that cool that we get to do that? That we're invited to do that? That the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents and we get to be involved in this process? 2 Timothy 2 in front of you. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead. We suffer hardship, imprisonment, but the word of God is not in prison. For this reason, endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with it eternal glory. What a joy. How will they call, Romans 10, 14, on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who, who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The implication is simple. And a few verses later in this Romans text, we read in verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So Christ saves by his word. God creates by the power of his word we see in scripture. And so by his word, he creates new life in us. We need to stay focused on this. We must always be tethered to this, dear brothers and sisters. We must, in the words of Oswald Chambers, never confuse our desire for people to accept the gospel with creating a gospel that is acceptable to people. In many churches, the gospel has become Christ died to make you happy. Christ died to meet your needs. Uh, Christ will give you this and that, and people will line up to hear that. But the gospel is not bringing people to Christ in order to have their felt needs met. According to the scripture, the gospel is the good news that lost sinners can be forgiven of sins and receive righteousness of Christ in exchange for what he has done for us. Let us, let us this day be committed afresh to this end. Let us this day leave this place, and look at our city. These, here you see the boundary lines of 158 cities within Los Angeles County, 114 neighborhoods within the city of Los Angeles, 42 unincorporated uh, 
areas. The statistics are, are amazing. This is an incredible place to be positioned. It's like Ephesus. It's like Corinth. It's dark. It's dysfunctional. It's hard. It's a sacrifice. According, according to this data, we are in the west side of Los Angeles, an urban region that, that is about uh, 101 square miles. And you know what? God has many, many people here. And God will use the preaching of his word through the saints to draw them to himself. With all this talk of mission, we need to be reminded, as one pastor, John Piper, eloquently put it, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions or service. God is ultimate, not man. When the age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Missions is a temporary necessity, but worship is forever. Worship, therefore, is our fuel and our goal as we leave this place and we go in service. Joyfully worshiping God, upholding his word, loving people, living out the gospel of Jesus that we proclaim together in discipleship for his glory. Let us respond to the word today as we come to the communion table. We have the very elements in front of us that picture what has been proclaimed to you. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. Let us partake in this as we sing and we worship him. Let us be reminded that our service, we've been selected to serve, but the ultimate end in this is worship. And, and, and let's cry out to him as we come to the table, because the table pictures forgiveness. And there's not a person in this room who doesn't need forgiveness. There's not a person in this room who crushed it last week. You hurt people, you lied, you did stuff you said you wouldn't do again. You, 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 if, you're, if, 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 if you're in tune with your own heart, there's stuff going on in it. You need a savior. You need the spirit. You need forgiveness. You need redemption. You need wholeness. So cry out to him for that today and be transformed by him today. Cry out to him, make me bold. I, I haven't shared this message. Have you never seen someone come to Christ through your mouth before? Have you, have you never gotten to experience that? Cry out to God, oh God, I want that to happen. I want you to use me. I want to labor with you. I want to share you and see lives changed. Oh Lord, that I would see it once. See it again, Lord. Use me for your service. He selected you for this end. Trust him to this end. Cry out to him to this end. And we'll come to the table and experience his forgiveness and the joy that he gives. Let's pray and we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your selection. Lord, we, can, we confess that on first hearing of you choosing, often our, our response uh, is to recoil. We hear of your, your sovereignty and we recoil. Everything in our fallen hearts and in, in our culture would have us to believe in a God who responds to us as, as, a, as, a, as a God who, who, who we, we come to and, 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 then, and then he responds. Indeed, the religions of this world are filled with gods like that. But you and you alone are one who, before the foundations of the world, baffles our wisdom by choosing what will happen. And you, you do so by your sovereign will, your perfect and holy will. So we lay ourselves before you. Not, not, not only before the foundations of the world, you would choose a people for yourself, but before the foundation of the world, as your servant John wrote about in Revelation, the Lamb was slain 
So, Father, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, when, when, when your word was given and the world came into existence, it was, it was with the full plan that the word would become enfleshed and die for the creation that rebelled against you, the giver of life. So as we come now and we partake in the bread and the juice, Lord, I, I pray that you would use this memorial table to draw us in repentance and faith. As we join our, our, our lips in, in song, Lord, would you do a work in our hearts that the things that we sing will be true within us. Sanctify us, sanctify us, cleanse us, O oh God, I pray. May we know your power. Do a work in us here and now uh, that we'll look back next week and, and we'll rejoice again of, of what you're doing in your people for your glory for the sake of your name around this city and the world. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.